From the University of Cambridge, this is Election, the weekly politics podcast. My name is David Runciman, and we've been coming to you each week here from my office in the Cambridge Politics Department to talk about what really matters in this campaign. And we will keep going until Britain has a new government, however long that takes. This week, my guest is the historian Robert Toombs, who last year published a widely acclaimed and epic history of England from pre-Roman times right up to the coalition government and the Scottish independence referendum. We'll be talking about what gives England its distinctive political identity and some of the ways that identity is having to be rethought, including the question of whether it really makes sense anymore to think of ourselves as a war-fighting people. So I think we have to rethink what it means to defend ourselves in the modern world and how it can be done. And I think there has to be a, probably a big shake-up of the whole defence establishment. But Robert Toombs is also a historian of France, and that gives a different perspective on some of the problems that we're facing course we're looking at this potential crisis ourselves with with the continuing dynamism of Scottish nationalism and we've no idea what that's going to bring about but it's not likely to be such a catastrophe as as France could could be facing. Stay tuned for a far-reaching conversation. This weekend, the Times newspaper published a profile of David Cameron as part of its series on the party leaders. In it, the Prime Minister revealed the most important book he's read, the one he says he comes back to time and time again. It's a recent work of economic and political history called Why Nations Fail by the political scientists Darren Asamoglu and James Robinson. It was published in 2012. What does this choice tell us about David Cameron and how he sees the world? And how does it compare to Ed Miliband's favourite book, another work of economic and political history, though of much less recent vintage? Carl Polanyi's 1944 classic, The Great Transformation. These might not be your favourite books, but we're talking about politicians here. I'm joined by two members of our regular news panel, Helen Thompson, who is herself an expert on economic history, and Finbar Livesey, who's a specialist in public policy. For the many people listening who will not have read these books, and indeed I suspect who will never have heard of them, we thought we'd start by trying to explain what they say and what kind of books they are. Both of them are quite complicated, so it's not that easy. Helen, how would you sum up Cameron's favourite, Why Nations Fail? What's it about? What kind of a book is it? Well, the basic thesis of Why Nations Fail is is that democracy, broadly construed, is in the long term the necessary condition of rising material living standards. And the hero of the book is, is really Britain, both because at home, England after 1689 and the Glorious Revolution created inclusive economic and political institutions, and because in its imperial form as Britain, Britain also bequeathed the same kind of institutions to the United States in sharp contrast to the Spanish legacy in particular in South America. And the crucial political implication of the book is is that ultimately China will not be able to continue with an economy that produces rising living standards and a politics that is based on an authoritarian state. So it basically divides the world up into, I mean, to use the phrases that they use, what the authors call inclusive states, 
which are basically states with the rule of law and democracy and open institutions, and what they call extractive states, where rulers basically try and extract whatever they can in terms of wealth and power from their populations. And it is a kind of either-or book. Britain and the successors of that system were on one side of the line, and large chunks of the world are still on the other side of the line. So, Phil, but what do you think it says about David Cameron that this is his favourite book, the book that he goes back to time and again? I think it says that he's a guy still looking for his big vision. He's looking for the big explanation for his politics and for how he's going to approach both the politics he sets up within the UK and how he thinks about international relations, how he thinks about other countries. He quotes the book uh, in conversations about development. He also quotes it in conversations about open government. I worry, though, because the book itself was fascinating, a, a romping read, as they say. You can read into it pretty much what you want to read into it at the level of this kind of country. One of the criticisms that's been made of this book is it's fairly light on practical policy suggestions. So what does it say about Cameron that he goes back time and time again to a book that hasn't actually got anything to say about how to make British politics better? As I said, I think he's looking for something to explain a big story because he doesn't have a big story to explain the engine of how he's thinking about the politics. But also, Britain is the hero of the book. I think he is liking that story of Britain providing the world with a model and an exemplar. Potentially, he's trying to set himself up as the shining light on the hill and trying to say, look, we have provided the example. We were the first example. We have strength in how people are going to set up their governments. And so we should give this to the, to the world in some sense, almost an analog to the American version of saying, here's our democracy. And so I think, again, it, it's a person searching for these big stories that he wants to tell about both himself and the country. There is also potentially a conservative, small c conservative message in this book which is if you're lucky enough to live in one of the lucky countries, we are a lucky, blessed nation on this account, don't screw it up. Not how could you make it better, where's the improvement? It's more about being very careful that you don't do anything that would allow your country to relapse back. So maybe it would be useful here to then compare it to the book that we know because it's been cited frequently by him and by people around him, is Ed Miliband's favourite book, the book that he refers to when he's thinking about some of the big questions, which also happens to be a book primarily about Britain and Britain's history, but it tells a very different account. It's a much bleaker account of how Britain became the country it is. It's by someone that many listeners may not have heard of, Karl Polanyi, who was an economist and a historian. He came from the Austro-Hungarian Empire. He emigrated to Britain and then to the United States. It was published in 1944. Does anyone want to have a go and say what this book says, The Great Transformation? It's an incredibly difficult book to summarise, but to have a go, the idea is that the market doesn't exist in and of itself. It has to live within a society, has to live within its context. What we would now probably call free markets. Exactly. What, what, the, free market. the, the thing that economists believe in. Exactly. And that the free market actually is something that's imposed cannot work. And it's a, it's a very, very strong critique of all of the ideas that then come later of the Washington Consensus and the ideas that are pushed forward that what you need to do is liberalise, 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 and all will be well. So in a way, on that account, you can see why, maybe more clearly than in the Cameron Why Nations Fail case, why this might be one of Ed Miliband's favourite books, and also why it might have come back into fashion post the 2008 crisis and people's increasing awareness that free markets and liberalisation is not the panacea that solves all of our problems. Helen, can you see clearly what Miliband gets out of this book? 
he clearly wants to provide an intellectual critique with an emphasis there on intellectual critique of free market liberalism. And this is a language in the book that gives him a, a way of doing that. But I, I think in some sense, the temperamental appeal of the book to him is, is that he is somebody who wants to believe that ideas change the world. And Ed Miliband would like to reconstruct Britain according to an idea he has of what kind of country it should be. So in some sense, he kind of has the aspiration to what he's also critiquing. Cameron's favourite book says that what matter are institutions. Get the institutions right, everything else will follow. What Miliband's book says is that ideas shape institutions, societies, politics. And if you have the wrong ideas, you have to fight back with ideas of your own. And again, this might be putting it too crudely, but another difference between the two books is that why nations fail, underneath there's a very simple idea. It's a two-way idea, it's a binary idea, it's either or, good and bad. And we've all, over the weekend, I think, reread the Polanyi. Um, it's a really complicated book. And in a way, it never at any point says you have a choice this way or that way. Every time one political, economic, intellectual system is imposed, there's always a reaction against it. And these two things run in parallel. So Cameron's favourite book is simple and neat. And Miliband's favourite book is complicated and messy. Does that tell us something about the two people that we're choosing between to be our next Prime Minister? Certainly, I think it, it says something in the sense that Miliband has a, a clear temperamental taste for more complicated ideas, I think, than Cameron. But I also think it says something about both of their characters, that they, they like the, these books, which put a lot of emphasis on politics as an explanation about the way the world is. And there are other ways of looking at the creation of the modern world, and in particular, Britain's early success in it, which would put a lot more emphasis on resource questions, which are not things that either of these authors are concerned with. You know, why is Britain the first industrialised economy? It's got a lot to do with how much coal that there is in this country. And this is not something that features in either of these books and is an explanation of why Britain goes down the road in which it does. Do you think there's something to also draw from this, that both of these politicians like these big history books that take evidence from different points in the past. The Why Nations Fail book is a broad sweep history that covers centuries. Polanyi's book really focuses on the 18th and the 19th century. We're now in the 21st century. Does it give you any pause that, that our politicians are drawing their lessons from the past, given that there is a case for saying that the current condition of British politics, international politics, in the age that we live in, is just different? There's the phrase, if you, you know, those who don't know their history are going to repeat it. I think you're right that some of the context has changed. For me, the biggest omission is ideas of technical change, technology, and how new pieces of technology are changing the way in which both we run the economy, how we run our politics, how we run our lives. And that, for me, is the biggest issue. When you talk about how things are going to change... Um, yes, politics is important. Yes, the economy is very, very important. But technology doesn't feature at all. Thanks to Helen and Finbar. I'll be coming back to them later to talk about the official launch of the election campaign. Before that, my conversation with Robert Toombs, author of The English and Their History, which came out last November despite taking the thousand-year story right up until the Scottish referendum result just two months previously. History might not be speeding up, but publishing certainly is. I started by asking Robert Toombs, what makes English identity distinct? It seems to me that probably what makes a national culture distinctive are not so much a set of ideas as a set of habits, inhibitions, 
things that you think are normal or not normal, acceptable or not acceptable. And although if, if you or I tried, I'm sure we could come up with a list of these things, they're not things that can easily be defined. I mean, a couple I'd give would be to say a good deal of inhibition against violence in British political life, which is not true in many countries and is not even true in many European countries. But particularly political violence, that's yeah. the thing that yeah, we, sure. we don't do. Yes, I mean, OK, fights outside pubs we've always done. In politics, I but think... revolutionary violence has not been Yeah, thing. or even even in, in the course of demonstrations, OK, there's often a bit of pushing and shoving and even a bit of a, you know, a few punches are thrown, but it's very rare to see people going out tooled up for violence, which I I've seen often in Paris. And also I think there's been quite, for quite a long time a kind of inhibition against what we usually call extremism. If you were French, you would, and you said, I'm on, uh, I'm on the extreme left. No one would think that this was a bad thing to be, unless, of course, you're on the extreme right. But people don't disavow extremism in their opinions, and nor do they think of ideology as being a sort of condemnatory label. <laughs> Can't think there are many countries in which to be called ideological if you're a politician is thought to be something terribly bad. So I think, you know, there's a sense that we want to be kind of moderate, and we want to be sort of middling, and we don't want to be too extreme, and we certainly don't want to be uncivil usually, and certainly not, I think, violent. But I think that there is a, a sense within English political culture of, of an attachment to accountable government, a suspicion of politicians, foreign as well as British, a, a dislike of great projects, and a sense that things are moving too much away from a democratic system which however imperfect we feel is ours, towards a system which seems not to be terribly accountable, terribly democratic. And I think one ought to take these fears seriously. So one of the ironies here, and again, you point this out in your book, is that the argument about Europe is often couched in terms of sovereignty. But England is the largest entity in Europe that doesn't have, never mind sovereign institutions, doesn't really have its own political institutions at all. So do you see these two things going together in any sense that part of what's driving the particular English dynamic here is a sense that England itself is underrepresented in Europe within Britain. Yeah, I think that is, that's the case now. Uh, I think, you know, you could say the, the, the irony, if you like, is that because the English so much identified with Britain, UKIP, after all, is called the UK Independence Party. It's not the English Independence Party. Uh, it although it sometimes looks a bit like it, that. It does look like that. And, of course, its support is largely confined to England. I think the English were, in a sense, forced to recognise the fact of their lack of institutions simply because other people were, particularly the Scots, were, were making so much of the fact that they had theirs. So I think the English had to be sort of pushed very hard into becoming in any way conscious of their own lack of underrepresentation. And therefore, now I think it's certainly the case that Euroscepticism and a sense of unfair treatment of England are coming together. And that, of course, is why UKIP have had such a sense of increasing dynamism. And there's a tension in that as well, because as you described it, Englishness or Britishness is a scepticism of grand politics, grand projects, a suspicion of politicians. And yet at the same time, part of the demand here seems to be for more politics. We want more institutions if we want England to have its own identity. And when the English people are offered these institutions, as they were in a referendum by New Labour, they reject them. Yeah, they, they, yes. they reject constitutional reform. Yeah. Uh, so these things might be pulling in two different directions. And it might yeah. be that the underlying scepticism is still going to 
to dominate what actually happens here. Yes, it could be. I, I think you're absolutely right. To generalise wildly, English public opinion, or UK opinion, if you like, would actually like things to go away, would like problems to disappear. It has no great plan to solve these problems, it seems to me, but to, to in a sense, to withdraw from them or, or hope that somehow they'll disappear. But it, I think it is very striking that there seems to be no appetite, and certainly very few ideas, except among a few constitutional specialists, for reforming the constitution. And as you say, when people are asked what they want to change, the answer is nothing or everything, but, but no sense of how it can be done. Another thing that you describe in your book, which seems to make Englishness and Britishness distinct from the continental experience, is that we don't really have a tradition of what you might call the secular left, as you put it. Um, and this may be related to our ideas about extremism, that both the reform or leftist part of British politics and the more traditional conservative part of British politics have a kind of religious tradition, dissent on the one hand and Anglicanism on the other. And so the thing that we're lacking is is that, that radicalism, which comes from the secularised version, and we don't have that confessional divide between the believers and the non-believers. Yours is a history over a thousand plus years. But is that, do you think, still a distinctive feature of our politics compared to the continent? Can you see that historical tradition still playing out today? It makes British politics feel rather different more moralistic, especially from the left. You know, if you go to France or Germany, the, the left is about certain ideologies or certain ideas about how the state should be organised. Ours, it seems to me, is less that, much more a moral crusade for goodness. And it takes on a, it very easily takes on a moralistic colouring. I was going to say it's got a disapproving feel to it often. It sometimes, yes, I, dare I say a somewhat, somewhat slightly sanctimonious feel, in which you feel that you're not only right, but you're also better than your opponents. And, I mean, I think you see that in debate about the NHS. Healthcare is not really a, a great subject in, of politics in most European countries. Or if it is, it tends to be a rather practical discussion of, of how it can be paid for or, or modified. It's, it doesn't become a great moral crusade in which people who are talking about changing it are sort of stigmatised as, as wicked. So, I mean, that's, that's one aspect of it. And I think it makes our political life a bit more exciting and also some, in some ways a bit more difficult to, to handle in that it makes issues much more emotional than they necessarily have to be. The NHS is is a large, broadly socialist enterprise. That's its tradition, that's its history, though it's now owned by both parties. The same country, England or Britain, contains one of the biggest capitalist entities in Europe, which is the City of London. And the current election sometimes feels like a fight about these two institutions, the NHS and the City of London, and people tend to divide one way or the other. Do you think there are any politicians left who can make the case for Englishness or for Britishness that combines both, that to belong to this country is to belong to a country that has within it both the NHS and the City of London? The only person I think of who might be able to do that is Boris Johnson, and even then I'm not convinced he plausibly is going to be a defender of the NHS. He's clearly a defender of the City of London. But it's a real challenge for contemporary politicians to defend both. I suppose it is, because they tend to appeal to quite different emotional visions and of different ideas about politics and society, clearly. You could say, well, we, we can't actually do without them both. We, if we're going to pay for the NHS, the city provides useful income. It, it does make it possible for Britain, rather remarkably, to be the world's second exporter of services. And it's always been that part of our economy since the 18th century, which is the only one which is really clearly more efficient than, than those of our competitors. 
So in, in some ways, it's something that we wouldn't want to get rid of. And it's hard to imagine any politician really saying, OK, let's close down all the banks and kick them all out. But on the other hand, it does obviously cause all sorts of problems of inequality. And people people often hate bankers. Perhaps they always have, but I think probably more, more now than at any time since, dare I say, the 18th century, when the money men were, the, were the sort of bogeymen of politics too. As for the NHS, of course, we all love it. Uh, at least we love it in principle. We don't always love it in practice. But it's become, as you say, a kind of sacred cow, which no politician can r- seriously criticise. And yet, sometimes we think that we're more to the right than most European countries. But I can't think of any European politician who would be so far to the left as are all British politicians on the health service. You know, French socialists, German socialists often regard the NHS with horror as being an excessively bureaucratic statist institution which they would never want to touch with a barge pole and if they ever get ill they go back home to be treated, which it seems to me extraordinary. I I rather like the NHS. But nevertheless, it's it's in some ways an anomaly in, in European politics. No other institution anywhere in Europe is anywhere like as powerful in terms of the numbers of people employed, the amount of money it costs. I checked the figures and it is the, the largest civilian state organisation in the world. It's much larger than the Indian Railways, which is sometimes compared with. It's smaller than the Chinese army a bit. Which it is also sometimes <laughs> compared with. Uh, but it's, uh, in all non-military organisations, it's, it's only smaller than Walmart. But as a single national organisation, it's far bigger than anything else that exists anywhere. I mentioned Boris Johnson there, currently Mayor of London, about to re-enter, we assume, the House of Commons. That is, we assume he's going to win. He, he represents another strand of this kind of dynamic, which is London itself. He's very much an English politician, but he's also a defender of London. And over the history of England and of Britain, there's always been some suspicion from the rest of the country of London's growing strength and growing dominance. And you can certainly feel that at the moment too. London, when we talk about overpowering neighbours, but within the UK, London feels sometimes like an overpowering entity. Do you think that the contemporary version of that is different from things that we've seen in the past? Is there a greater sense now from the regions that London has all the power and all the money? I mean, London has always been dominant in terms of population, wealth and power. And at a time when the monarchy was the dominant political institution, of course, it was largely a London institution too. So, I mean, I don't know that London really is more powerful now than it has been in the past. But it certainly is something that is is part of Englishness, if you like. It's this is this great consciousness of the, the power of, of the capital city. City. And you get something not dissimilar in France because of the dominance of Paris, though probably its economic dominance is not as great as that of London, I would guess. But, but its cultural dominance yeah, is if it's greater. greater yeah. yeah, probably. Well, yeah, maybe. Um, or it was. It was, yeah. Um, but of course, in Germany or Italy, you don't get this at all, simply because there is no dominant city. So it's it's hard to imagine England without London. Um, but then there are countries in which there are no such. There is not this great magnet of, of, of wealth and power and talent. But I think we just probably have to live. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style with it. 
the other thing that is often said about our national history is that it is an island story. It's sometimes called this island story, which means it's been very much shaped by the sea, by naval power, and by our ability to defend ourselves as an island. Something that's a distinctive feature of recent politics, and it's becoming an issue in this campaign, is the extent to which it's possible to retain our power and our weight in the world with the kinds of defence cuts that we're looking at now. So something that you remark on in your book, which is different about now compared to the whole of the history of England and of Britain, is that we don't build warships anymore. Now, that may be a feature of the 21st century, although there are still people who believe that naval power is the key to understanding international relations. But do you think that there's any kind of fundamental shift that goes on in the history of this nation when it ceases to think about that historical root of its power in the sea. We're not a seafaring people at all anymore, are we? We don't seem to be. I was born and brought up in the Midlands, and I've lived most of my life in Cambridge, which is about as which feel about as far as from the sea as you can get. So I may have a different view, or if you know, if you lived in Sussex or, or Portsmouth, yeah, you'd you'd have a different view. But I mean, I do think that the the idea of the sea is much less present in our culture than it once was. And it's partly because the sea has become less important to us. Of course, air travel is what most people do. Um, it's what carries a great deal of our exports. And our first line of defence is no longer the channel. And so in that sense, the sea has simply become less important. And that's just, I suppose, a, as you say, a fact of the, indeed the 20th and, and the 21st centuries. Of course, we are going to have two large aircraft carriers, or so we're promised, which will make us, again, a seafaring power. And presumably our whole defence strategy will be based on these great ships, if they actually are ever... If we can afford them. (laughs) If we ever commission them, or one of them. I think our defence needs a a rethink. There's going to be a defence review. But I think we're no longer very clear what it is we're defending and and what, what it is we're defending it from, and whether, in fact, boots on the ground are what we need anymore. Maybe we have to be more flexible and we have to think in terms of smaller interventions. The disasters, I think one has to call them disasters in Iraq and in Afghanistan, showed terrible um, limitations of politician strategic thinking, of the quality of command of the armed forces, and the fact that it's very difficult to say now what the purpose of these engagements were or what if anything, they've brought about. And yet these are some of the most expensive and longest overseas engagements we fought, much longer than any Victorian war, and certainly far more expensive. Uh, So I think we have to rethink what it means to defend ourselves in the modern world and how it can be done. And I think there has to be probably a big shake-up of the whole defence establishment. I speak as a complete non-expert. Are you surprised, speaking, and I also speak as a non-expert, that the Iraq war obviously loomed very large over the 2005 election. We're now 10 years on from that election, 12 years on from the war. But there have been other, I would say, disastrous interventions in this parliament. Libya currently looks like a complete mess. Mm. We've been talking about the NHS, which looms very large in this election campaign. But the kinds of questions you've just been talking about don't feature much at all. There's a bit of a debate about the defence budget and the size of the cuts. But those fundamental questions about what it means to defend ourselves, what kind of armed forces we want for the future, they don't seem to feature in electoral politics much. Does that surprise you or do you think that's how democracy actually tends to do these things? Yeah, I think it probably is. It's hard to think of a time in which these were 
matters of electoral moment, really. Wars become electoral issues. I think defence policy doesn't, because hardly anybody understands what it's all about. There's a big anti-war movement in the 30s. The fact is the government was, was rearming, was doing it behind the scenes, in a sense, and very few people knew what this, what this all meant. I think we're sort of back now into the position we're in the 1920s, you know, when there was a 10-year rule. We're not going to be fighting a major war for 10 years. This is sort of rolling target in which you, you cut defence spending really back down as far as you can. And maybe that's the right thing to do. I mean, we still spend about as much on, on defence as the Victorians usually did. You might say they did a lot, an awful lot more with it. But I mean, as a proportion of, of GDP, it's, it's not very different. But then the Victorians didn't fight a lot of big wars. And of course, it's a much smaller proportion of the state. It's not as a proportion of GDP, but because the uh, state yes, was so much smaller indeed. in Victorian times. It was, yeah. So finally, we've touched a bit on France. French politics is itself in a state of considerable flux. Sometimes people in Britain look at France and think, that looks like a more dangerous political situation than ours, in that maybe Nigel Farage is the knockabout end of the peer version, but Marine Le Pen is the real thing, a real force in French and perhaps in European politics, which Farage isn't. Do you have that sense? Do you feel that Marine Le Pen is someone we should be thinking more about in this country? France has been on the verge of disaster, or so it's seemed, for, for years, if not for generations. And it seems to muddle through. And, you know, France has considerable strengths. But, yes, it does seem to be facing a, a considerable economic problem. And it does seem to be facing this dreadful political choice, which may present itself between Nicolas Sarkozy and, and Marine Le Pen. OK, Marine Le Pen is, I think, the real thing. And I think the Front National is a much more sinister and dangerous force than UKIP. It's got a lot of the same sort of people voting for it as vote for UKIP and for the same kinds of reasons. But I think it did begin essentially as an extremist and racist movement, which I don't think UKIP really did or, or really is. It has, it has extremists and racists in it, but it's not led by or, or dominated by them in the way that the Front National clearly was. Uh, what Marine Le Pen is really like, if there is a real to be discovered, I, I don't know. But it is extraordinary that it is at least considered possible, though I still find it very difficult to imagine in, in reality, that she could be elected president. And of course, the French constitution makes this a real danger. You know, you, you, you can elect an oddball to the position of commander in chief, head of state, in theory, exercise vast powers without, almost without parliamentary consent. I think if that happened, it, there would probably be a meltdown of French politics and probably an economic disaster, and it would, it would have huge effects on the whole of Europe. There's no doubt about that. Whether it will happen or not, I still, I still find it very difficult to believe because I think in the end French electors, will, will, in, most of them will not go for this. And the electoral system in France might provide a safeguard in that it does produce in the end a runoff, a, a yes, two-way choice. it does. And her father, after all, got through to that stage. Yeah. And was roundly. Yes, I mean the disaster, in a sense, as in the last, as the last time, is for the French left, in which left-wing French voters are forced to vote for a right-wing candidate they they can't stand in order to keep out a right-wing candidate whom they can't stand even more. And there's, there's obviously something wrong with the, the whole French political system. I think it, it, it is something to do with the weakness of party structures. It's something to do with the what the French call le cumul des mandats. You can hold several offices at once. And it often means that politicians are immovable once they've got into a position. I think we are looking at a, a serious potential crisis. Of course, we're looking at a serious potential crisis our, ourselves with, with, the, with the, the continuing dynamism of Scottish nationalism. And we have no idea what that's going to bring about. But it's not likely to be such a catastrophe as, as France could be facing. 
I gave a talk to a, an Anglo-French audience last week in which I said, you have to remember that, we're, that both countries are facing potential political cataclysms, which will have, if they happen, a profound effect on our mutual relationship in ways that none of us can really predict. So I think it's possible to be very pessimistic. And I'm sure it's, it's sure that something bad's going to happen, but what it is and how bad it will be, historians prefer not to say. Thank you to Robert Toombs. For more details on his books, just go to our website, Google Cambridge Election Podcast. Now back to our regular panel. Parliament was dissolved on Monday, signalling the start of the campaign proper, though since we've known the date for five years, it might be hard to tell the difference. We don't yet have the party manifestos, though again, many of their pledges have already been made. So does the start of official campaigning mark anything new? How much can really change over the next five weeks? Finbar, what do you think? I think you do see a very significant gear shift. Um, obviously, you're getting the disengagement of the Liberal Democrats proper from the Conservatives. You're seeing the tribalism and that kind of language coming back out of a lot of the parties and the spokespersons that they're putting up. So just to be clear, you think until this point, the Liberal Democrats still felt constrained because they were part of the government to rein in some of the things they wanted to say against their Conservative Without question. coalition partners. Without question. And the starting gun for that really was the moment when they tried to present the alternative budget. That was the first real moment of saying we're going to strongly distance ourselves and try and create a separate identity again away from the coalition. But is five weeks enough after five years of being joined at the hip? Is five weeks enough to strongly distance yourself from the people with whom you have been governing? Probably not. And I, I, there's a lot of conversation about whether or not the poll numbers being so weak for the Liberal Democrats are going to translate into a significant loss of seats or whether they'll hold on in their strongholds. We'll see how that plays out. I think that there will obviously be a seat loss for the Liberal Democrats, but I don't think it's going to be as devastating as some of the stronger critiques are. The one comment I would make, though, at the start of the campaign is that we're getting a tone which is incredibly aggressive. And actually, the first few days of the campaign are more about the politicians fighting with the media than anything else, because the interviewers have decided that they want to impose themselves on the conversation. You saw it with Jeremy Paxman. You've seen it with Evan Davis on Newsnight dealing with Grant Shapps. Some of that's to be welcomed. You want the politicians to be held to account. But it seems to be getting in the way of actually having a conversation at the minute. So the two people who've been liberated by the start of the campaign, according to Finbar, are the Liberal Democrats, who can now actually say what they really think, and the media, the big beast interviewers of the media, who can now start ripping chunks of flesh out of the politicians. Helen, do you think anyone else is going to be liberated by this? Or are the main parties just playing the long game that they've been playing for a while? Yeah, I think one of the interesting things about the campaign is, is that nothing really uh, seems to have changed in the sense that because we've always known that this is when the campaign is going to start and because pretty much everybody agrees now there's going to be no clear outcome to this election, it's almost like now we're waiting for the election to be over because the election's not the interesting thing. What's interesting is what happens after the election. So I kind of fear that we're going to have a month of rather stale arguments, people going through exactly the same positions, the politicians, I mean by that, and then the media kind of looking to whip some interest out of that. But actually, the big political game is what happens after May the 7th, not what's going to happen before it. So we've got five weeks of angry, aggressive treading of water to look forward to. Absolutely. One interesting piece of political science work that was done a few years ago about election campaigns asked the question whether people genuinely change their minds during a campaign. Because there's 
emerged certainly among academics a kind of conventional wisdom that suggests that campaigns don't really make a difference. That people have made up their minds. There's a lot of froth. The Jeremy Paxmans of this world get a lot of attention, but people aren't actually changing their minds. What this research suggested is that people do change their minds because they are focusing on politics now. They are subject to all sorts of different kinds of influences, following, for instance, prime ministerial debates, certain news stories that grab the agenda. It does shift opinion, but then it shifts back. So what this research suggested was that people change their minds during campaigns and then when they get into the ballot booth they change back to where they were a month earlier because all the froth disappears and they focus again on the question. I think it's interesting to bear this in mind because we may see a lot of shift in the polls over this campaign and the classic example of this was actually the last election where Nick Clegg and the Liberal Democrats at various points were leading in the opinion polls and people were starting to think that the ground was shifting under their feet and we were going to get a Liberal Democrat-led government and then on the day itself, though they did pretty well, they were more or less back to where they started. Finbar's looking at me sceptically, a little further ahead than where they started, but the big shift in the campaign turned out then to dissipate. Finbar, do you think we might see something this time? We've got Prime Ministerial debate coming up. They're going to be news stories. They're going to be little scandals. They're going to be gaffes. Politicians are going to say some incredibly stupid things, and the media are going to rip them apart for it. Do you think we're going to see changing of mind and changing back? Or do you think we might actually see changing of mind that sticks? I think we're going to see changing of mind, some changing back. I think the real question actually is turnout and who's turning out. Because I think we're at an interesting moment after the Scottish referendum, after a genuinely engaged political debate about what was going to happen in Scotland. Some of that has leaked down. and we, Down south. Down south. And we potentially will see stronger turnout for younger voters. And that's interesting because they may be underrepresented in the polling. And so some of the polling numbers might be slightly off. And do you think some of them are still to make up their minds about how they're going to vote? I think they are. I I think especially for first time voters, uh, they're going to be the ones who will be changing their mind the most, potentially the most influenced by messages they're going to hear in the next five weeks. And so I think there's open ground there. If you're going to see, as I think you're going to see, a stronger turnout than before in the younger age brackets. Now, one of the things that Helen said that's different about this campaign than previous campaigns is we've known more or less for five years when it was going to start. Previously, we would be on tenterhooks because it takes the Prime Minister to decide to go to the Queen and ask for a dissolution of Parliament to kickstart the whole process. Because we've known this in advance, it doesn't signal a shift in the way that it has in the past. Now, we've started to get some requests from people listening to this podcast of things they would like us to discuss. So I want to finish this time with a couple of things that we've been asked to talk about, one of which is parochial, it's about Britain, and one of which we'll see in a minute is a bit more global. The local question, the British question is, do you think that this parliament that we're about to elect should repeal the five-year fixed-term parliament act? Because that's the big difference in British politics, is that we now have five years, it's fixed, we know when the next election is. But this has a lot of criticism from people who think it's too constraining, and also from one or two people, and I would include myself in this, who think that five years is too long. Helen, do you think that there's a good case following this election for repealing that piece of legislation? I think that there is, but not because I think fixed-term parliaments are a bad idea. I agree with you that five years is too long. I think that four years would be a much more sensible length of time. I think the case for having a fixed-term parliament, though this particular piece of legislation was clearly drafted without sufficient thought, is is that you don't want the executive to be able to determine when an election is. Part of what democracy is about holding those with power to account. 
And if you give the executive the right to decide when they have another election, you're giving them a huge advantage, not one I think that it's easy to justify in terms of democratic politics. And that was the original rationale for creating this legislation. It was to reassure the Liberal Democrats that David Cameron, as the Prime Minister, wouldn't cut and run at an opportune moment where he thought he could get an overall majority. Finbar, do you agree with Helen that actually this is a serious piece of democratic reform that we should cling on to? Because to go back to what we've had for the rest of Britain's democratic history is to give too much power to the prime minister. Unfortunately, you're going to get rousing agreement. I think we should hang on to the main components. As Helen said, five years is probably a little bit too long. The problem for me, though, is that not only was it hastily drafted, the nature of how people campaign and how parties organise and how we think about elections has to change if we're going to adapt to fixed-term parliaments well. You've seen this ridiculous phraseology coming up of the long campaign and the short campaign. You've seen David Cameron going to chat to the Queen, even though he didn't need to go and chat to the Queen, and taking a moment in the sun and using the bully pulpit in 10 Downing Street afterwards as well. Well, the Queen would have been offended if he hadn't gone to tell her. But Parliament... Even though she knew. But Parliament was dissolved automatically. So the pomp and circumstance survived. And so I think that there is a moment that we have a very good idea of fixed-term Parliaments possibly we should shorten. But around it, the conversation about how we run the process still needs to be modified and updated. The one thing that may happen after this election is part of the rationale for fixed-term parliaments is the thought that we're entering an era of coalition government and coalitions need some security to hold themselves together. The risk is that we're not entering a phase of coalition government, we're entering a phase of minority government because it turns out under the British system it's going to be very hard to put coalitions together. The fear about fixed-term parliaments is actually they do not sit well with minority government because minority governments find it quite hard to govern over that period of time and that there needs to be more flexibility here. So to make the case for possible repeal, I do think that if we have a coalition, if we say get another Conservative Lib Dem or Labour Lib Dem coalition, I think it definitely makes sense to hold on to this legislation. If we're looking at a minority government, there may be some tension between the length of time that the government is expected to cling on and its ability to do so. But there is an underlying problem, which is the problem with the drafting of the legislation in the first place, which is the British Parliament is sovereign, but you have to find a coalition in the Parliament to agree to a new form of legislation. There's a sort of chicken and egg issue here, which is if people could agree in that way, you might not need the legislation in the first place. It's going to be very difficult to form a government. It's going to be very difficult to get a coalition within the new Parliament to repeal this legislation. I think that that's, that's absolutely right, but I still don't think it's an insurmountable problem. And one of the reasons why it would be difficult under the present legislation to run a minority government is because of the way that it's drafted. It, it, the, the law needs to be more responsive to what happens when a, a government cannot command a parliamentary majority in an ongoing way rather than just say that it's lost one vote. And I don't see why it's in principle so difficult to find a mechanism to address that within a new fixed-term parliament, though I take your point entirely that actually getting that bill through the House of Commons will not be an easy exercise. So now the second thing that we've been asked to talk about, which is in a completely different context on a completely different scale, we talked in a previous episode about another election that was happening somewhere else in the world. That was the Israeli election. Yesterday and overnight, we've seen the results in another massive election that's taken place, which is in Nigeria. And there's always an interesting comparative point to be made about is British democracy really typical or is it a different kind of democracy from the other kinds of elections we see around the world? But it also relates back to what we were talking about earlier, why nations fail and the question about whether you can divide the world up into inclusive regimes and extractive regimes. 
On the Asimoglu and Robinson account, Nigeria definitely falls into the second camp. But there is quite a lot of optimism this morning about the fact that Nigeria may be a rare instance of a large African democracy in which the incumbent loses power and there is a transfer of power peacefully to the opposition. There is a definition of democracy, which is that it's civil war without the guns. And this may be a case of that, that this is actually the peaceful way of dealing with conflict that otherwise produces violence and civil war. So the pessimists would say nothing's going to change in Nigeria. The old dictator has come back in via an election. The optimists would say a peaceful transfer of power is the beginnings of the move to stable, secure, prosperous democracy. Helen optimistic or pessimistic? I think that I'm pessimistic in this case. And I think that if you go back to Asimoglu and Robinson's thesis, it's quite striking that they don't actually talk about democracy much of the time. They talk about inclusive political institutions. And having an election isn't sufficient, or even having an election that produces a peaceful transfer of power isn't sufficient, anywhere near sufficient to get to inclusive political institutions. But the other reason why I'd be pessimistic about Nigeria is because of Nigeria's oil dependency and how vulnerable they are to crisis, economic crisis as a result of that. Including a world of falling oil prices. Absolutely. Probably nowhere other than Venezuela has been badly hit, is devastatingly hit by the fall in the price of oil over the last six months as Nigeria. And this is going to have ongoing consequences for Nigeria's ability to have any kind of stable politics, regardless of whether they were having elections or non-elections. This would hit the falling oil price problem hits whatever the form of government that you have. Democracies aren't exempt either. Fimba, give us some optimism. The optimism is that you can start to tell a story of the transition and that you can use it as a story moving forward. Look at the progress we have made. Look at this transition that we can see happening. That's it for this week. Thank you to everyone who sent in their questions and comments. If you'd like to join in, our Twitter hashtag is hashtag election podcast. Thanks also to our guest, Robert Toombs, to the regular panellists, Helen Thompson and Finbar Livesey, and for production to Hannah Critchlow and Francis Durnley. Join us again next week when we'll be talking about conspiracy theories. Labour's Shadow Foreign Secretary Douglas Alexander recently described the spread of conspiracy theories as a threat to democracy after he met a woman who didn't believe the result of the Scottish referendum. Is the government telling us the truth about immigration? Are we really run by a secret elite? Where are those space aliens? Come back next time for more. My name is David Runciman. This is the Cambridge University podcast, Election. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, 
Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.